Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Norman Finkelstein, who received his PhD from the Princeton University Politics Department in 1987. He is the author of many books that have been translated into 60 foreign editions, including The Holocaust Industry, Reflections on the Exploitation of Jewish Suffering, Gaza, An Inquest into Its Martyrdom, and I accuse herewith a proof beyond reasonable doubt that ICC Chief Prosecutor Fatou Bensouda whitewashed Israel. His latest book is I'll Burn That Bridge When I Get to It, Politically Incorrect Thoughts on Cancel Culture and Academic Freedom, due to be released later this year. In 2020, Norman Finkelstein was named the fifth most influential political scientist in the world. It is my pleasure to welcome Norman Finkelstein to Savage Minds. I'm so happy to have you on the show. And I wanted to step back to 12 years ago when I contacted you, because what we're about to discuss is very relevant to what has been happening in academia for some time. I reached out to you when I decided to leave the University of Montreal in late 2009 after being mobbed and attempts to cancel me, let's put it that way. And I saw many of the signs happening to you that were happening to me, uh, much less did I suffer, however. And I reached out to you because I thought I was losing my mind. And, you know, I remember even before I took that job, when I was at NYU and having to deal with then Daniel Pipe's Campus Watch blacklist, remember that? A lot of people today think, oh, cancel culture is so new. But what I really loved about your forthcoming book, I'll Burn That Bridge When I Get to It, Politically Incorrect Thoughts on Cancel Culture and Academic Freedom, is how you go back into history to show how cancel culture is not new. It might have been executed by the right at certain points in history, like Pipe's Campus Watch. But for our listeners who don't know about that, it was basically a website launched just after 9-11 for anonymous reports about professors who were teaching or writing on the Middle East about especially Palestine or critical of Israel in even a mildly factual way. So this book of yours, however, it's amazing because you go back to where wokery pre-existed today's model and you discuss how you say at one point, it's really a lovely quote. If this book is laced with vitriol, that's because so much of woke culture deserves contempt. If nonetheless, a large amount of space is devoted to dissecting this nonsense, that's because it's not immediately obvious why it's nonsense. And I hear the sound of people reaching for their safe spaces as I read that line, because we're in a moment of history I never thought I'd live through where we have people giving trigger warnings, safety spaces, safety pins, etc., etc. Can you speak to how you got to writing your book? Because obviously you've been canceled. This isn't new, yet a lot of Generation Z think this is new. I think that there are aspects of what's going on that are new, and there are aspects of what's going on that have a long history. Uh, to begin with the most elementary observations, any culture, at least any culture hitherto, has had limits on what's permissible speech. And once you go beyond those limits, you are in troubled terrain. Uh, everyone who studies 
political philosophy has to begin or near at, almost at the beginning uh, has to read uh, Socrates uh, mea culpa uh, for which he lost his life because he claims, I'm not sure if his depiction is accurate, but he claims that he was punished for questioning authority or uh, educating his students to question authority. So going back, so to speak, to nearly the beginning, uh, history is replete, it's rife with examples of people who have been punished by authority for their beliefs. We fast forward many centuries to nearly, at least the present for my age cohort. Uh, I grew up just in the shadow of McCarthyism, the attempt by the ruling elites authority to silence uh, both critics of US domestic policy, in particular, the attempt at that point to de-radicalize the labor movement by ridding it of all quote unquote communists, because all the militants were communists, and to suppress dissent at home of uh, the US's consolidation after World War II of its global hegemony, which sounds very theoretical and uh, almost hygienic, but that meant support for all sorts of uh, very brutal repressions of those, those countries and those peoples who were uh, struggling for their not only their independence, but for their economic development, uh, which came into conflict with US global aims after World War II. So um, growing up, I came from a left-wing left household. Uh, I was sensitive to the issue of cancel culture. I had friends whose parents had been in the Communist Party, and I eventually came to know some of the, I wouldn't call them the leading actors, but certainly people who played a prominent role in leftist culture in the 1930s, the 1940s, and the 1950s. They came to be mentors, inspirations, uh, and so forth. Uh, so that was the council culture I grew up with. And there are obvious resemblances uh, to the blacklist of the 1950s uh, and the kind of canceling of people by the left uh, now, or the self-described left nowadays. Uh, the main difference is, and it's, it's a, it, these are kind of subtle distinctions. The main difference is uh, cancel culture of my 
era growing up, the McCarthyism was a state-sponsored uh, undertaking. It was a state-sponsored endeavor. Endeavor. So it had all the force, all the power of the state in its multifarious forms behind it. So it could be the blacklist, or it could be, say, in the case of the Rosenbergs, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, the, the accused atomic spies, it could be execution. So those are pretty severe penalties for being a dissident. Cancel culture nowadays, it takes the form uh, on the left side of the spectrum. It takes obviously milder forms uh, compared to what was possible in the 1950s because it's not state-sponsored in the same way. What makes cancel culture different than another phenomenon, one that which um, I came familiar with, or it came to become familiar in the 1990s, we had the culture of political correctness. And the culture of political correctness was basically this kind of liberal imposition of what's correct thoughts, what are correct political thoughts, and what are incorrect political thoughts. Uh, you have to remember, political correctness was actually a term coined by the left in a kind of self-mockery of what was going on. These thought police who wanted to make you progressive in your mindset and penalize you for not being progressive. But as I said, the political correctness was kind of a self-mockery and it never took, I would call it severe forms. What differ, what makes cancel culture differ different from political correctness was uh, something which I don't think has been completely understood, including by myself, is that the American, the, U, the major political party, the, the Democratic Party, uh, came to substitute a kind of identity politics uh, for its hitherto working class base. And so the, the Democratic Party, in ways which are kind of bizarre, uh, has come to adopt uh, identity politics and cancel culture as part of its own, um, uh, as part of its own reigning ideology. And so you have these kinds of strange phenomena of the New York Times, which is the House organ of the Democratic Party, the New York Times embracing the George Floyd demonstrations, embracing transsexual identity, embracing <clears throat> uh, all sorts of things which would have been so out of character of the Times in, say, the 1990s. It became like the a storm center of wokeism, the times. And 
In my opinion, that's because the Democratic Party had now become the party of identity politics and therefore also of cancel culture. And so from a kind of marginal, flaky, self-mocking phenomenon, namely political correctness of the 1990s, it's now become a genuine menace, I think, in, in significant part because of its adoption by the Democratic Party. It's not yet McCarthyism, you know, nobody's going to get executed, though it has to be said, Julian Assange is pay, playing a, a, a huge price, uh, but that wasn't cancel culture, that's Cold War culture. That's the McCarthyism culture, but at an extreme, you know, uh, urging on the uh, Rosenbergs. So I know it was a little bit difficult to follow everything I had to say, but at this moment, I'm just going to throw out ideas uh, because I don't even believe I myself have a fully clear picture of what's going on and how it came to pass. Uh, two anomalies. One, McCarthyism was a phenomenon of the right. Identity politics and cancel culture is a phenomenon of the left. Secondly, political correctness, which is the immediate precursor of woke ideology, cancel culture, and so forth. Political correctness was a kind of flaky, marginal phenomenon. But the identity politics uh, the wokeness, that's not marginal. No, it's, uh, it's in the heart of power now. And uh, so I think that has to be, that distinction is important to make. Well, yes, if you've been following what's been going on in the UK these last eight years, there's been a very steady unraveling in large part because women have become political activists. Uh, there's a new wave of feminism where women have organized, there's various groups out there fighting against gender ideology because it has now resulted in rapists being housed in women's prisons, seriously. It's happening in Canada, it's happened in several US states, California, Texas, others, and you have sports now being threatened because women are playing rugby with six foot five blokes. This is insanity to anyone who's played rugby. Many rugby players, males, have come out in support of these women saying, this is wrong. There's been a large debate with the IOC deciding on which sports in the Olympics can include men. They call them trans women. And there's been no accountability towards women's visibility and participation in these sports until quite recently after these women have organized. The same thing happens in the UK around policing. There you have various groups like Fair Cop that have come out and asked the police, why are you knocking on people's doors saying that they misgendered someone on Twitter? They've criminalized thought. And there's been a huge pushback to this by people on the streets, by organizations, even the judiciary, which has a handbook, which instructs if you are raped by a man who identifies as a woman, you have to call him she. 
This is all being contested. There have been vast changes over the past two years because of these women's groups. The realpolitik on the other side of saying, I have a pronoun, please respect that, is women's rights have been taken from under them. So will I agree with you that McCarthyism was a very state-sponsored, organized political control of speech and political involvement, I would also argue that today we have corporations acting as the wider reach of the state, where you have now Facebook moderating comments, but who's moderating the comments for Facebook? It's an organization directly linked to NATO. You have Twitter kicking off users, kicking off the New York Post because they deemed the Hunter Biden story to be a fraud. The New York Times also reported badly on that story. We found out that was true. News can be wiped out with a swift account deletion. Well over 50% of Americans are getting their news from social media. So it's censorship from the private sector because the state has outsourced a lot of this. And when I say the state, I guess I should be specific. I mean, this is coming from the Democratic Party because we're seeing the Republicans launching widely lawsuits against big tech now. And there are several big tech lawsuits in the balance, including uh, the creators of the Great Barrington Declaration, who've hit back saying, you can't just say that this is fake news. There has to be accountability for what is and is not fake news, because as immunologists and virologists, we're disagreeing with how lockdown was handled. We're not maniacs saying there's no virus. And you know, you turn on MSNBC and anyone who disagreed with lockdown at the height of the worst in 2020 was deemed a killer of grannies, was deemed a vax denier. So this takes such lengths into various politics from Black Lives Matter to a lesbian being forced to say that she's not transphobic. And if a lesbian says she will not sleep with a woman with a penis, then she can lose her job. I mean, these are real things that have happened in the last decade. What I was impressed with your book is that you deal with the way that censorship and shaming has been rife in history. In fact, you talk about some of your heroes and heroines in your first chapter. You give a critique of the current cultural madness afoot with such clarity, holding up the left to account for what it has advanced. And you go into what happened with Paul Robeson, Pete Seeger, Annette Rubinstein, Paul Sweezy, even Noam Chomsky. And you discuss the Harper's letter and identity politics writing, the signatories of the Harper's letter presumably had something else in mind, however, by cancel culture, not state repression targeting members and fellow travelers of a left-wing political party, but the assault led by left-wing activists in a mostly cultural milieu targeting reactionary speech. And then you go on to the irony of New York Times journalists queuing up to sign this letter who themselves had previously canceled Bernie Sanders as he was regularly maligned and misrepresented within that paper, focusing on issues of reparations and basically rendering him a caricature. Um, there are many things that you have said. I will look at three of them comment briefly, and then, of course, you can respond. On the sexual politics, it's not a focus of my book. It's a large area of uh, concern right now, uh, in particular, the transgender rights. Um, and I think my basic view there is, uh, number one, there's a large element of, I think, 
self-indulgence by people who have a lot of time on their hands and a lot of money in their bank accounts. Uh, I teach in a public university and uh, I've had several hundred students in the last, I would say no, I would say I'd have maybe a couple of hundred students in the last couple of years. I just resumed teaching after a 15 year hiatus uh, due to my, uh, I guess you can call it canceling. Uh, so uh, when I teach these students of the a couple of hundred I've had thus far, there's only one student, literally only one, who made any issue or tried to try to make an issue of his or her uh, pronouns. Otherwise, these sorts of concerns, pronouns, for example, they're very pronounced in elite graduate schools um, or elite schools in general. But when you come to working class schools, uh, kids who are the sons and daughters of immigrants, uh, young people who are living four to a household uh, and barely making the rent each month, young people who have huge student debt, um, huge student debt with no prospect of ever repaying it. When you come to that constituency, what famously came to be called the 99%. These sorts of issues are so far at the bottom of their priorities that it never even comes up. Now, I would want to say that young people as compared to my own generation, they're remarkably tolerant, they're remarkably de decent, uh, and there's a genuine sense of solidarity when it comes to all sorts of uh, um, non-conventional lifestyles, non-conventional sexual orientations, uh, and so forth. So, you know, to take the obvious example, I was born in 1953. Uh, as late as 1970s, early 70s, homosexuality was classified as a mental disorder by the American uh, Psychologist uh, Association, American Psychology Association. Uh, now a 20 year old, the fact of a friend being of, um, as I say, non-conventional sexual orientation, it doesn't even raise an eyebrow. It's not even a subject of interest. And that's obviously a very positive social evolution so and cultural evolution. So we have to acknowledge there's been a huge amount of cultural and, and social, not just tolerance, because tolerance has the connotation of you don't like it, but you're willing to live with it. Uh, it's more than tolerance. It's a recognition of each other's common humanity notwithstanding uh, sexual, uh, uh, sexual um, unconventionalities, uh, which in my generation, uh, there was a very high level of not just intolerance, but really uh, viciousness 
uh, including by progressive people, uh, people on the left. Um, so that's a positive development, I think. Uh, I think the problems begin, and first, first of all, as I said, most of these concerns which get the headlines, like the pronouns, uh, th this, these are concerns of elite circles. They have nothing to do whatever with the reality of the proverbial, now proverbial, 99%. Uh, secondly, as I said, even though these are concerns of the 90, of the elite circles, the 1%, it's still useful to keep in mind that there have been very positive developments in terms of cultural solidarity. I don't like the word tolerance, as I said. Uh, the third thing I would say is that there's a lot of gray area. And I don't think one can be, one should be or can be dogmatic about gray, air, gray zones. This whole issue of um, the bathrooms, the locker rooms, the sports teams, um, those are gray areas. How do you resolve them? I don't know. And I guess there is inevitably a certain amount of digging in the heel, digging in of the heels on both sides. But I think we have to acknowledge as one proceeds to try to find a reasonable resolution of these questions that um, they aren't so cut and dry. I devote a more than average amount of, a more than passing amount of space in the book to the whole issue of abortion. And I think abortion is another one of those cases where your position, as with the bathrooms, the sports teams, they've become litmus tests of whether you are uh, a worthy human being or not where there's a lot of gray area and that one should be honest about the fact that there's gray area and your, your, your adversary, your opponent, your interlocutor, it doesn't make him or her necessarily a bad person, a misogynist, guilty of transphobia and all sorts of other epithets. It doesn't make you guilty of those uh, thought crimes uh, if you disagree. I think people have, uh, I do recognize at some point there has to be a resolution. Who will compete in on the Olympics? Which bathroom will you use? Uh, yes, there has to be some sort of practical resolution. And the practical resolution is probably not going to satisfy a significant number of people. Uh, but I think there has to also be a recognition that reasonable people can disagree on uh, a lot of these issues. I personally, if you were to ask my opinion, I do not accept that a person has the right to choose his or her pronoun. A pronoun uh, typically occurs in um, that area of a form that you fill out. If you have a form that you fill out, it's going to have things like 
eye color, hair color, height, weight, sex, those are not immutables, but you might call them simply identifiers. They're useful identifiers for various reasons. And they have no cultural or social um, implications. You happen to be, well, whether you like it or not, you happen to be of a certain height, whether you like it or not, you happen to have blue, brown, or whatever, or color eyes, whether you like it or not, you happen to be, unless you're in the process of trying to remedy that, you happen to be of a certain weight. Uh, and these are just objective facts. And we always had a box that said sex, male or female. And that was um, like height, weight, hair color, eye color, so forth. It's just a more or less immutable, useful for identification purposes. And everything else is your business. If you want to carry on like what's conventionally described as a woman, if you want to dress as what's conventionally described as a woman, if you're a man who wants to like men or a woman who likes wants to like women or feels constitutionally, as it were, compelled to like a man or a woman, that's all your personal business. It has nothing to do with pronouns. If I call you he or I call you she, it's the same thing as I say, hey, you, the fellow with the brown hair, or you, the woman with the blonde hair. Or if I say, hey, you, the, uh, the tall guy on the basketball team, or uh, hey, you, uh, these are just physical identifiers, not more, not less. And I don't see why they have to become suddenly politically charged. I'm not going to call a single individual a they. I'm not going to do it because, first of all, it's, I don't think it's accurate so far as the English language goes. And secondly, because I think these are more designed, these kinds of self-designations are more designed to get you attention than they have any desire to convey any language, convey any idea, let alone does it have anything to do with your self-regard, self-esteem. You're not a they. You are a he or a she. Uh, and I'm pre- I, I, I don't, I, I won't, um, participate in these kinds of, in my opinion, like the pronouns, these kinds of self-absorbed word games. I'm a teacher. I want to teach. And I don't want these distractions to enter into the classroom. Um, So I'm, I'm I'm a skeptic on these issues, though, as I said, they they never come up. This is an invention of Martha's Vineyard culture. It has nothing to do with the real lives of real people in the real world. Um, so, uh, and then there were the the comments you made about the attempts to police the web. It's probably true. I'm not a web person. I'm not a web person. I'm a books person. I'm not a tweets person. I'm a books person, uh, those sorts of 
new modes, not of communication, but new modes of communicating. I don't, uh, I don't participate in. I've never been on Facebook. I've never been on Twitter. I've never been on Instagram. I've never been on any of the social media. Uh, my webmaster uh, would place things I wrote on those social media, but I personally have never been on them. I know nothing about them. Uh, and it's probably true. I can't say with any kind of professional authority. It's probably true that at the edges, at the edges, new questions about freedom of speech arise. One person whose judgment I respect a lot made the point that the rapidity with which something on the web can be trans, uh, can be um, uh, disseminated, the rapidity with which it can be disseminated can present some clear and present dangers uh, to vulnerable, say vulnerable minorities before the police or the state has time to take action. There may be some truth to that. I'm kind of a skeptic. I don't see that the powers of dissemination of, so to speak, a wrong idea or a lethal idea or a vicious idea um, are fast, are the, the, the speed of dissemination is greater on the web than it is, say, by radio, uh, a radio broadcast. So I'm not sure how new the issues are. But if there are new issues, these are new issues on the margins. The problem with what's going on now is there are widespread attempts by, uh, to, uh, uh, at censorship as if the idea of so to speak, what it's now called fake news, uh, lies, uh, as if these are new problems that have suddenly arisen and that people haven't wrestled with the issues of freedom of speech uh, since the dawn of humankind. And in particular in the United States, most of the battles fought over free speech, they were fought by the left. The left was the constituency that was most repressed by state-sponsored suppression of speech. And the left fought many battles in the courts, in our legal system, to expand the rights of free speech for the left, up to and including the right to advocate the violent overthrow of the capitalist system and a government in this or a state in the service of the capitalist system. The right to advocate those sorts of things, parts of the left agenda, uh, that right was very one after arduous struggle not least on the legal front. And now to not just forfeit the right of liberty of speech, but become the agents of suppression of free speech and handing over the power 
to decide what should and shouldn't be heard, handing over that power to corporate entities like Facebook strikes me as not just backward, not just contrary to the search for truth, but it strikes me as being in complete contradiction to what the left had stood for for so long, the right, as Paul Robeson famously said it when he sang the song, The House I Live In. At one point in the song, he says, the right to speak my mind out, that's America to me. And whenever he said the right to speak my mind out, he enunciated the words with great precision and it always evoked loud applause from the audience because he was a major victim of, the, of losing the right to speak out. And now that right is not only being for, forfeited by what calls itself the left, but they are becoming the participants in the suppression of speech under the guise of identity politics and woke ideology. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. We're seeing this in some of the examples I gave you from the UK. One of the troubling things to me isn't only that men are in women's sports teams or in women's prison cells or domestic abuse shelters. It goes back further to the idea, and this was fomented, as you said earlier, it definitely has come from graduate schools of elite institutions. It's coming from secondary schools of the private nature. So you're getting a tranche of our society that is elite, well-funded, has too much time on its hands, spending too much time on social media as well, I would add that. And they are insisting things that fly in the face of basic scientific facts. Sex itself is immutable. As Michael Jackson showed, you can bleach your skin, but that doesn't really change your ethnicity. One can appear to be something else, but that does not make you that something else. At the height of the transgender feminist wars around 2014-15, there was someone who wrote a blog saying, I'm trans poor. So they were talking about how they were wealthy, but identified as poor. It was satire. But I think that we go back to material reality here, not just of sex being immutable, but the material reality of women. The division of space, if you go back to the 19th century when public restrooms started to appear within Victorian England, that allowed women to leave their homes. They could use toilets. They could leave the home without fear of having to either use toilets in men's spaces or simply return home or not leave home in the first place. There are certain freedoms that women gained because of the societal agreement that men and women's private spaces should be separate. And here we have stage left entering 
a bunch of people who say, but I identify as you. And that's what has really caused issues. Most of these issues are in Anglophone countries. You mentioned earlier, this is not happening on the Altiplano of Bolivia. One, people would laugh at the idea. And secondly, they have bigger fish to fry. They have real economic life and death issues head to toe that they're dealing with. We take this paradigm of gender identity and we compare this to what happened with Rachel Dolezal, who was laughed out of town when it was discovered that she was faking being black and in fact had a charge of a black NGO. This is a problem and people recognize that as a problem and she lost her credential, she lost her job, she was run out of town. How is it though, do you see that we have so much acceptance and people embrace the notion that men can become women or women can become men, all these articles on the pregnant man, yet nobody really believes this. So we go back to historical material traditions where the left should be backing the reality of women, the fact that women are still not paid equally, although they are now more today than they were 30 years ago. We still have issues of childcare, of women being able to get jobs after they've had children, women being able to receive tenure within uh, medical institutions, within academic institutions, this kind of debate is not happening. Instead, all of the attention is being cast towards these poor boys who can't run track against these girls. But the real effects of that, and I've interviewed some on the show, some of these girls lost college scholarships. They could not be paid to go to school any longer because their places were taken by boys. This happened in Connecticut. It happened also recently in the Olympics when in one event, men took the top three medals for women simply because they identified as. So while it might seem like tinsel on the Christmas tree, it's a very bread and butter issue for women, especially women who are losing their livelihoods over this. I'm thinking about what you said earlier about this coming from graduate schools. I couldn't agree more because this was taught to me when I was in graduate school in the 90s. And I saw the other side of that even teaching within these institutions, where at one point NYU hired me to teach a course. It was the clash of civilizations. I retitled the course. I was critiqued because I taught Edward Said's Orientalism. A few students, I mentioned Daniel Pipes earlier, they were upset that I hadn't taught a more conservative text in the class, even though I did. I taught Huntington and then I taught Said. I think today within academia is that we're being given mandates in many of these institutions to give the people what they want, if you know what I mean. It's almost as if academia has set up its own social justice mantra at these more elite institutions specifically, and they set out to maintain that. I saw this quite a bit in Canada as well. And I believe that on the other side of this identity politics, what does that mean? Because to me, it's devoid of any intellectual rigor and is entirely based upon a neoliberal consciousness grasping at linguistic tropes like the pronouns as a stand-in for political power. And at times these individuals within academia rise to the top of their fields because it seems that today absolute nonsense is passing a scholarship. And even when I arrived at the University of Montreal in the beginning of 2003, I was given one piece of advice by one of the tenured colleagues there. He said, be easy on students, give them very little work, and you'll get excellent student reviews, and that will weigh heavily on your tenure review. And so anyone 
who is listening to this, who studied with me knows I give a lot of work. I'm very demanding. I also pay attention to the text. My classes weren't about ideological training, which I think a lot of these institutions are about. But I also wondered why my colleague was telling me this. Like he was trying to give me a hands up, helping me to understand the best way to get tenure. But it seems that academia has been veering towards this capitalist customer survey model for performance, weighing so heavily on the evaluation by students instead of you know, that older balance of publications, books, peer reviews, etc. And you were denied tenure yourself by DePaul University on the grounds that you were lacking in civility. And this at the time when Dershowitz was posting on Harvard Law School's website his suspicions that your late mother was a capo who had been, I'm quoting him, cooperating with Nazis during the Holocaust. So DePaul had no grounds for calling you uncivil if his was the bar of civility. Um, once again, you say many things and I'm gonna just focus again on certain of them. I was surprised by your statement that you're supposed to give what, nowadays you're supposed to give what the students want. I don't see any indication really that this kind of woke education is what the students want. It's what some not very bright, administrators might want. It might be what uh, university administrations, in order to get themselves firmly in the woke column, might want. But I don't find that students necessarily, with marginal exceptions, necessarily want this kind of lightweight, actually really second-rate, third-rate education. It's really a very sad thing what's happened to many university departments, uh, which are now uh, steeped in wokeness. If you look at, for example, I was helping a student who wants to go to law school, a very bright young man, uh, and he wanted to improve his writing skills. And I told him, quoting a very good writer, when she was asked, how do you become a writer? She replied, read, 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 write, write, write. That's how you become um, a good writer. It's a, what she said was a play on, it used to be said, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? And the reply was, that it was, the question was put as a geographic question, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? But the person replies in a different register, the person replies, practice, practice, practice. That's how you get to Carnegie Hall. And the same way, how do you become a good writer? Read, 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 write, write, write. And in order to become a good writer, you have to read, read, read quality literature. 
which is rather different than sitting on your computer all day, read, read, reading tweets, or, or read, read, read second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth tier literature. So why do I say this? So the other day, the student asks me, I say, okay, let's go through the course offerings at your school to see what's available in English, because I want you to read the great British novels. I want you to read Shakespeare. I want you to read the kinds of literature that people like Robert Burns, excuse me, that Frederick Douglass read in order to become the great orator and the great writer that he was. So um, Douglas, he read Shakespeare, he read Robert Burns, he read Charles Dickens, uh, and he became a brilliant orator and writer, breathtaking actually. Um, so we start going through the course offerings <clears throat> in the department. There were probably around 50 course offerings. There was one, one, one seminar, senior seminar on Shakespeare, one. There were about, of the 50, there were about 30 on either dealing with sexual orientation literature or ethnic literature, Haitian American writers, Dominican American writers, um, Central American women lesbian writers. I'm not making any of this up. I mean, this is this is the God's truth. There was one survey course, one, one, on British literature from the beginning to the end. That's it. One course. <clears throat> this was an atrocity. It really depressed me. It was, I couldn't recommend more than one course out of 50 to this young man in order to assist him in making himself competitive <clears throat> when it came to entering law school and also in the future becoming a top flight lawyer, which in no small part means the ability to write a good strong brief, one that's logical, one that's elegant, and also, also to elocute inside a courtroom with a certain grasp and flair of the English language. And you don't have any of that when you have these kinds of half-assed courses being given by politically correct professors, administrators, but not the students. The students can be blamed for many things, but the kinds of course offerings and the kinds of downright crap that are being taught in the schools, that's not what the students want. That's what the students are being handed by half-literate thought police who have never read, and I include 
so-called English professors who've never read a novel. These people are illiterate. They're a disgrace to the teaching profession. And they're unable to even cobble together a basic English sentence. Part of it is illiteracy, but the other part of it is that they think by using this kind of jargon, this mind-numbing jargon, they're somehow impressing people with the profundity of their thought. And I have to admit, yes, it works in many cases. You have these kinds of groupies for people like Judith Butler who sit in intently or laughing at the in-jokes as she mouths, I won't say articulates, she mouths the most mind-numbing gibberish to the extent that there even can be teased out from what she's saying anything coherent. Sometimes you can tease something out, but that very same idea can be conveyed in very elementary English prose, subject, predicate, object. Doesn't require this mumbo jumbo trying to impress. So um, I think a lot of things are going on, but I don't think students should in any way be held culpable. Yes, there are some student activists who demand, you know, we want representation by Tahitian Americans in the English curriculum. Uh, yeah, there are some, uh, but I, I don't think they have much impact. I was thinking more about the graduate students because a lot of the course that you just listed, mm. a lot of them will be being taught by graduate students. Yes, I, 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 I think there is a definite problem at the graduate student level. There, yeah. there, there's, there, there's a definite problem there. I, I had a student and he, he went to study English uh, in the American South at a good university, reasonable. He dropped out after one semester. He said it was just all about, uh, it was mostly women in his, it was English literature, mostly women, uh, mostly lesbians. And all they wanted to talk about is lesbian women. Uh, <laughs> he, he, well, he dropped out. He, he couldn't yeah. make it. Uh, and I think that, I, I, well, I think it's kind of sad because so few people who want to study something like English literature nowadays, because it's not something that's going to get you on a career trajectory where you're going to make enough money to um, uh, uh, meet your, your monthly uh, bills. And to see people like that discouraged by this nonsense masquerading as profound insight no, that's, that's for me, it's very disheartening. I have to tell you, I was so ashamed 
ashamed for the college when I saw what they were offering in English literature. One senior seminar on Shakespeare. In my day, if you were going to major in English, the 100 level courses, the 100 level, you had to take one 100 level course in Shakespeare's comedies and one 100 level course in Shakespeare's tragedies. And then there's the 200 level course in Shakespeare's sonnets. Uh, that, that was just standard. And you read all the great British novelists because their grasp of English was unequal by anyone of their day and probably anyone of our day. Uh, Philip Roth was a great uh, stylist. I'm never going to take that away from him. Uh, I don't think he had as much to say as the great British novelist. Um, but you're never going to learn English. You're never going to learn English composition, articulation from the crap the crap that's now being taught. It's a disgrace. And uh, I, for one, uh, will not reserve judgment. I say there are gray areas. There are areas, you know, where in a current woke culture, where I, where I acknowledge uh, I'm no expert. I prefer to, you know, when you come to things like um, the, uh, issues of men competing in women's sports and women competing in men's sports and all that sort of stuff. I prefer to hear what biologists have to say. Well, you don't need to be a biologist anymore because nature just ran a piece by someone who has a PhD in government, wrote a piece saying, this is amazing to read, nature published this, saying mm -hmm. basically, I'm quoting, invoking biology is a rhetorical move, not a data-driven conclusion. It's also wrong. From a medical perspective, sex is not the uncomplicated either-or proposition that many lay people imagine it to be. It was a piece of crap, this op-ed, and it's become the ducking stool all over for women, for the science. But this is my question, because your critiques of higher education are valid. This has come about with the managerial class rising in numbers within academia. And it's also, it explains a lot of the reasons why Robin D'Angelo rose to fame so quickly. Her expertise in white fragility, I loved it. You had me laughing so much when you write, D'Angelo calls herself a sociologist, but so far as formal credentials go, she might just as well call herself a particle physicist. I love that. And then you wrote that D'Angelo's shtick would be comical were it not so sinister. Under the cloak of fighting racism, D'Angelo exacerbates it as she so discord, suspicion, even hatred between blacks and whites. She doesn't interrupt racism. She props it up. She buttresses it. This is an argument I've been making for a long time where the, the neoliberal left has been spinning a neo-racism. It's all about reducing oneself to one's genetic racialism and it's itself its own form of racism. And so what I noticed in academia when I was in graduate school in the 90s was the focus on interdisciplinarity. Sounds great on paper, but the end result is we have someone with a degree in government saying that sex is much more complex than we think it is and that scientists have it all wrong. Put her in charge of the COVID commission, I guess. And good thing you're not on social media because everyone was an immunologist in 2020. 
we sort of forgotten who the experts are, Norman. This is my worry. You're right. We aren't reading the texts of cis, white, heteronormative, heterosexual, whatever men, because, well, you're all evil, right? And this is crazy what we're living through because it's an absolute smack in the face of enlightenment. I doubt it's just white men who say there are two sexes. Oh, no, I was making fun, though. No, no, lots of women, a lot of women, including a lot of lesbians are pushing on this nonsense. I'm non-binary. Yeah, I, I, I talk to, whenever I have a science question, I go to scientists and I, I, or biology, which is a division of the natural sciences, I go to the experts and hear what they have to say uh, about these uh, issues. I would, of course, agree with you that um, there has been a, a, a serious devaluation of expertise where people who haven't a clue what they're talking about are claiming to be sociologists. Uh, uh, Robin D'Angelo is just an airhead, a, a, an unusually stupid one, I have to say. And she's worthy only of mockery in terms of what she her what she's put to paper. I wouldn't call it writing, just as I refuse to call that thing a book, white fragility. Uh, but there's also the political repercussions. And the main political repercussions are uh, we're living in an era in many ways. In many ways, there are grounds for real optimism because there has been a kind of homogenization of the multinational working class. There has been a kind of homogenization of that class. The, as I said earlier, the now proverbial 99%, such that there is a real possibility of building a mass movement based on the common concerns of that homogenized class. And that mass movement emerged in the UK in the Corbyn candidacy and in the US in the Bernie Sanders candidacy. Uh, and it also showed itself uh, during the George Floyd demonstrations here. And the whole purpose of uh, the Robin D'Angelo's of this world is to sow discord among the uh, that coming to be homogenized working class by telling black people you can't trust white people. They're all racist. They're consciously racist. They're subconsciously racist. They're unconsciously racist. They're racist to the core. They think you're all, and this is what she says. I mean, I'm not making it up. She thinks, she says, all white people think you're apes and gorillas. So the purpose of all of this identity politics, it has, so to speak, a positive and a negative purpose. The positive purpose from the point of view of the Democratic Party is to create a new constituency to replace its mass base which used to be the working class, but now has come to be designated famously or infamously by Hillary Clinton 
the basket of deplorables to replace the traditional working class with an identity politics constituency, a black constituency, a black woman constituency, a black woman lesbian constituency, a Hispanic constituency, although they're not very successful there, though Hispanics are veering towards the Republican Party. Uh, so that's, so to speak, the positive agenda of the identity politics, not in the sense of I approve of it, but in a certain sense of a aspiration. Uh, but the, the negative side is its purpose is to deflect attention, to deflect attention from the conflict that exists between the 99% and the 1% to deflect attention from that conflict by focusing, dividing, fractionalizing, fragmenting that 99% by sowing all kinds of suspicion and discourse and reducing, reducing the struggle for a just world reducing it to a kind of self-help therapy, how to interrupt racist thoughts that might pass through your mind. A kind of modern form of, in the 1950s, those who suffered from, who are said to suffer from homosexual tendencies, they were given shock therapy. And the diversity counselors like Robin DiAngelo, who has as much competence to be giving diversity training as she has competence to be giving training in quantum mechanics, um, they now want to not use shock therapy, but their idiotic sessions to interrupt racism. I mean, the sheer imbecility of this notion of interrupting racism, what, what could that concept possibly mean? And whenever I hear it, interrupting racism, what does that mean? How do you interrupt a thought passing through your head? How do you interrupt it? It's so idiotic, uh, but it serves a useful purpose because she says, hey, you marching in that George Floyd demonstration, you see that white dude standing next to you and chanting the same slogans as you? You see that white dude and he's smiling at you and he's out there with you? Well, guess what? Every time that white dude looks at you, He's thinking you're a gorilla and an ape. That's literally what she says. You know, it is so sick, but also so politically, uh, politically um, calculated, which is why, as Robin DiAngelo likes to say, business leaders are very impressed by what I'm doing. Oh, I'm sure they are. <laughs> I'm sure they are.
Thank you.